Welcome back. Let's get right to the round table. Oh, we've got so much to talk about today, don't we? And we have an all-star cast, so let's introduce them. First, Mark Caputo, Florida correspondent for Politico and author of the Daily Politico Florida Playbook. Also with us, Rocky Rodriguez. She is a government relations attorney with McDonald Hopkins and was general counsel to former Governor Jeb Bush. Marlon Hill is an attorney with the Hamilton Miller and Bertha Sill firm and a past president of the Caribbean Bar Association. Welcome, Good morning. everybody. We're so glad you are here. Rocky Rodriguez, how badly is Donald Trump been hurt by not getting what he demanded and having gone through the the agony of 35 days of 800,000 people being out of work and everything that went with it? Well, I would say that um, it was a, a hand that he played without a, a backup. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he really didn't have much to negotiate with. So I do think that he hurt himself. I think he hurt himself with the base because he didn't get a result. He hurt himself with um, federal employees and regular people that were watching this and wondering what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens between now and February 15th. But mm -hmm. frankly, I'm not so sure that he's going to get what he's hoping to get from the majority, Democratic majority controlled House. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure where he's going to end up on this. You know, when you really look at it from from the whole news of the week perspective, it, it almost, Marlon, seems this temporary end to the shutdown was really driven by people. They, their flights, the air traffic mm -hmm. controls weren't Sorry. being paid, the, the ground stop at LaGuardia. I mean, people started to take a look at this and say, you know, basta ya. Yeah, absolutely. I think he picked the wrong fight with the wrong, the wrong issues. You know, separating the two, the, whether it's the appropriations as opposed to immigration, national security, is two separate things. And then I think he just picked the wrong battle. And he also had a problem because if you notice, Mitch McConnell went into hiding. Yes. And he allowed this to become a fight between the presidency and the House. But boiling under the surface were a number of Republican <clears throat> senators who were starting to feel the pressure. And you started to see the cracks in that. And McConnell, uh, from what we understand, played a role in basically saying, look, I, I can't hold my caucus together if this keeps up. And, like, and allow Democrats mm -hmm. to do the hashtag, where's Mitch? Yeah. And that was, that was pretty I, I think damaging, I think. I think McConnell's accustomed to being demonized. He can handle that, but he doesn't, mm -hmm. you can't lose your own caucus, and he was starting to. Yeah. Mark, let me ask you the question I tried to get an answer from Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz. I'm not sure I got one. And that is, Nancy Pelosi, clearly, this was a big win for her. The question, it seems to me, is how does she use this and use it in a way that the American people say, oh, the Democrats want to solve things. They just don't want to stand in the way. They just don't want to be anti-Trump. Well, in this case, for instance, what she could do is theoretically say, hey, you really want your wall. We don't think it's a good idea, but fine. Let's, you, you'll get your border security, and we're going to do legalization of the 11 million undocumented DACA population. We might even limit chain or family uh, migration or family-based. Right immigration. However, I'm not sure she wants to do that. And what you're going to see from Pelosi, I believe, is just a slow motion stranglehold on President Trump. As he does things like what he did with the shutdown and starts to implode, she's just going to be there and allow himself to light himself on gasoline, you know, light himself on fire with gasoline. Yeah. So we're going to see probably in the next few months, maybe in the 2020 year, uh, the release of his tax information, which yeah. the House has the, the right House to Oversight so Committee. Mm -hmm. I think you're probably going to see that more and more because if anyone's been paying attention in the Congress, when you have a Republican House 
or a Republican Senate and a Democratic House or a Democratic Senate, you have split government, you don't get a lot accomplished. So I don't think we're going to see a lot. You know, Nancy Pelosi was sort of like, uh, Republicans just vilified her for everything. Do you think, Rocky, Republicans, more moderate Republicans, are looking at the House Speaker now and saying, wow, you know, doing pretty well? Well, I, I'm not one of those people that's going to go and defend Nancy Pelosi. Um, she is well, not I wasn't, going I wasn't to compromise. Looking for a defense, but just a, a different perspective now watching her maneuver. Um, I think that she had the stronger hand because mm -hmm. um, the, the reality was that, uh, as you pointed out, Glenna, when the uh, flights started getting disrupted, that pretty much is it when you have the media reporting that people are going to miss yeah. their second paycheck and they can't buy food or gasoline there's really nowhere to go for yeah. the president yeah. i i think that all she had to do was not agree to anything and she prevailed on this because she had that uh, the the um, the direction of events were in her favor and the miscalculation that the president made is that any hand that nancy gets she's going to play it strong Right. And if she has a stronger hand, she is going to play it. She is a masterful legislator yeah, right. and he needs to definitely respect yeah, it. There may be tough. a deal somewhere in this for him if he's smart. Yeah. If we can, I think one of the lowlights of the last couple of weeks were comments that were made this week by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, when on CNBC, he was asked, well, some people, uh, air traffic controllers and TSA screeners are going to food banks because they can't buy food because they're not getting paid. Let's run this clip of um, Wilbur Ross on CNBC. Well, I'm told it's not there. All right. He said he was asked, you know, he, he said something to the effect, well, I don't understand what the problem is. They could simply go to their bank and get a loan. Yeah, he had and a it, Marie Antoinette moment. Boy, it was a let them the, the, the problem. Moment. The problem is that the president's administration is filled with folks who don't live day to day. Most of us here on this floor, we're looking how to pay the mortgage, life insurance, health right. issues. Right. These are issues that were coming to a threshold with the shutdown, and that was part of the problem well, for the president. And the president didn't help himself. I believe he had said at one point people can basically <laughs> borrow from the grocer. Right. I, I, I've tried that at Publix. They don't spot me milk for some reason. <laughs> All right, bravo. So, we have, right. we have to balance out what uh, Secretary Ross said with what uh, Secretary Carson said. Um, I don't know if, if you recall, but I think it was on uh, Thursday he was interviewed and he expressed concern mm -hmm. for the situation being faced, uh, not just by the federal employees, but the people who depend on um, money for housing from HUD and other agencies. And I think that when you juxtapose Ben Carson with Wilbur Ross and you see that there's a division in the cabinet right. regarding concerns about the ongoing shutdown, uh, that to me was the indication that something was going to give pretty mm -hmm. quickly. He campaigned a whole administration by the words of a Commerce Secretary. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back with more Roundtable. Two minutes. We are back with the roundtable. Uh, you know, we just had a, a live shot from Cody Weddle from Caracas a little while ago. What's going on there? World taking sides. And Marlon, uh, last night we were discussing the Caribbean nations in the backyard of Venezuela are really not taking sides. What's that about? They are taking sides. I mean, they have a monetary and pecuniary interest in the deal that they have with um, natural gas and um, 
and oil. I, I found the, the statement very diplomatic and not aligning anywhere. Well, you know, they, they have to be careful about that because yeah. whoever comes into power into Venezuela could, you may, those agreements that they already have could be rescinded, right? You know, so the, the, pay attention to the OAS and the votes that are there blocking resolutions. But what's happening in Venezuela now, you have more countries actually coming out of the shadows and taking sides, which is going to impact whether or not the military makes a decision. Yeah, not to make this rocky about Cuba, but in fact, nobody, I think, has more at stake about what happens in Venezuela than Cuba because their terrible, faltering economy only keeps going because Venezuela gives them a huge amount of oil, some of which they use, some of which they resell. That's exactly true. And as you know, also another source of revenue for the Castro government has been sending Cuban doctors to mm -hmm. Venezuela, which um, you know has uh, diminished in, in recent years because there wasn't much uh, to, to get in exchange for them. But yeah, I mean, Venezuela, uh, the Maduro and Chavez uh, group are very much proxies for the Castros. And I'll tell you what, what you know, Cuba has been involved in uh, helping the Russians go into Venezuela surreptitiously. Right. They've had uh, planes landing in Cuba and continuing on to Caracas to help Maduro. So. Um, but Cuba's really not in a position to do much except send their security personnel to help Maduro. You know, it's really interesting to see what the Trump administration and the moves, it largely driven by Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Mark, it, it almost seems just from listening to the president in the past who does not get involved unless there is a national interest, that he's pretty convinced that Venezuela has a lot of interest in the United States. Right, well, it's, Venezuela has had kind of a population crisis, it's been a migration crisis. We were looking yeah. earlier. Uh, three, you know, three million Venezuelans have fled. Right, um, in just the a last million three. people to Colombia alone. It's destabilizing yeah. the Western Hemisphere and it's going to get worse. And the team of Marco Rubio, Secretary Pompeo, uh, Bolton, and we were discussing earlier Mauricio Claver Caron, who has Florida ties. Uh, they're all part of this kind of national security apparatus. And I think they're all for once, you see, in the Trump administration and Congress, everyone's singing from the same hymnal. It's kind of odd because we're so accustomed to seeing so much division in Washington over foreign policy here. But over, the, over, the next few, over the next few weeks, though, Mark, I think you're going to see this kind of tension between diplomatic, diplomatic route or military route or something in between. Who's going to play the arbiter to kind of bring both sides to kind of get to fair elections for Venezuela. Rocky, the, the diplomatic route taken right now is sort of not what the president usually does. This has been, I think, a diplomatic coup for him um, in going the multilateral route and going to the Security Council, which I was dubious of because of the veto of Russia and China, mm -hmm. but I think it was very effective. And going to the OAS was effective in getting the EU, the major powers, to give uh, Maduro an ultimatum of call elections in eight days or else. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a, it's a moment that Trump ought to savor and hopefully will have a good conclusion. I, I think that he's been listening to the better angels at the White House and clearly John Bolton is, is a pro and uh, Mike Pompeo I think has done a very good job. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, what I am worried about is, we mentioned <coughs> Russia earlier, I'm really worried about some kind of surprise coming up in the next week. What, I what think, kind of surprise? I think Maduro is playing for time because he's got a plan. And maybe he's playing for time to get more Russian military or mercenaries in there or to do something to change the game on the ground. And so um, I, I know this sounds kind of drastic, but I, I think that the U.S. needs to figure out a way to prevent 
any more uh, Russian security apparatus or mercenaries or contractors, whatever they call themselves, from establishing themselves in Venezuela because um, I think that Maduro realizes that the support from the Venezuelan military is, is going to be limited. We're already seeing people turn. We heard today that, um, that they're delivering letters to the military ex uh, promising them amnesty if they don't uh, engage in violence against the Venezuelan people. And so I think that um, he is playing for time to try to get more people helping him and yeah. therefore, I think that we cannot be complacent in giving him that extra time. We've got to figure out something. Wow. Well, the Washington Post, I think, last night did report that more <clears throat> Russian mercenaries, security people had gone into Venezuela. So some may already be there, but not a good situation. All right, everybody, hold your thoughts. We've got more roundtable coming up for you after a break. I have not asked the president for a pardon. I have never discussed a pardon with anyone in his administration or the president himself. I expect to be uh, acquitted and vindicated. I did not lie before the Congress. Any error I made would be an honest mistake of memory. It would be without intent. It would be immaterial and inconsequential. That was, of course, the one and only Roger Stone this morning at his home uh, in Fort Lauderdale on Local 10 News. And I just have to say to all of you, uh, it's hard to believe anything that Roger Stone says. He's witty. He's fun to talk to. Uh, he is not a truthful person. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I don't know who wants to take that one first. I, I, I do think he's probably telling the truth on discussing a pardon with Trump because he understands that his phone has been tapped for quite some time and his correspondence is being read. But let's not mistake any of this. If, if the Mueller indictment is true and if a, a, a jury decides that it's true, he gets convicted, and more than likely, Roger Stone gets pardoned by the president. Absolutely. Anyway, that's the only way to kind of understand, assuming it's true, that he lied that way, saying to Congress, "Look, I don't have any correspondence." Of course, he had correspondence. What was really yeah, interesting no. about this whole indictment is that we have focused so much attention on him, and I have to say, I think the media then and now has been really complicit in making him sort of the character and, and the bigger personality that he is. But really, if you read the indictment, it there's a, a bit, an important part in the Mueller investigation, if it's true, but a big part in the Mueller investigation, not an important part. No, it's a small piece, all interconnected, and the key is going to be when will this investigation end <coughs> to get all the facts out, right? The media's kind of been caught into the trap of a Roger Stone personality, and that's pretty much all it is, but he is definitely um, someone who always baits the media. Rocky, there is nothing in that indictment that ties Roger Stone to any kind of collusion, he, simply a go-between. So what do you think the special counsel is, is doing to sort of use him to tie Russia collusion to the Trump administration? My guess is that they're using him and other people who have been indicted uh, to continue to put pressure on the Trump administration to get his associates um, in a circle and either try to flip them like they did with Cohen, or at least put the president in an uncomfortable situation. Um, I mean, I read the indictment, and uh, if, if you read it carefully, as you said, Glenna, there, there's nothing about collusion with the Russians. There's nothing about uh, knowing, saying that he knew that the material was obtained through Russian intelligence. So they're really trying to get him for 
not telling the truth to Congress yeah. and for put, supposedly putting pressure on another witness. But in the indictment, there is a email exchange or a text exchange between Stone and Steve Bannon, where, you know, Steve Bannon essentially seems to be saying, if you know more stuff and you've been talking to Guccifer 2.0, you know, let's have it. I mean, there's, it's, it's just simply open to question whether Roger Stone ever actually talked to Julian Assange. At one point early on, he said he did, then he said he didn't, and maybe there were other intermediaries. It's kind of complex, but, you know, there is no direct link between Roger Stone and the Russians, just having that conversation with the Twitter name for uh, uh, the Russian intelligence. Right. And, you know, I think uh, people understand that Roger Stone likes to promote himself. Um, and a lot of people in politics like to claim that they have a lot of inside information that maybe they do, maybe they don't. I think it's telling that his lawyer is allowing him to speak publicly yeah. and discuss the indictment. And that's either, you know, a strategy to um, educate the potential jury pool or mm. to... Um, I don't think he would want it any other way. Yeah, or, yeah. or that they can't control him. I don't know which, mm. but yeah. usually lawyers tell you to shut up right. once you've been indicted by right. a special but, counsel. But, but <laughs> even, even a great lawyer like Bruce Rogo, you know, may not have control over Roger Stone. <laughs> Roger Stone does what Roger Stone wants to do. Mark, why do you think that he was not allowed to surrender, walk in on his own. Why do you think that well, they wanted to, occurred? They wanted to send a message to the broader pool of folks who have kind of stuck their middle finger up at the special counsel's office, at the federal government, and at Congress. Like, okay, you know, you, you want to say, you, you want to make us look like a bunch of clowns. Well, we're going to roust you out of bed, and you're going to show up at first appearance in court shackled with your hair disheveled because we got you up really early. And they uh, let him get dressed? They did. They allowed him to put on a polo shirt, which I think normally he would prefer to be in a tie, as he was this morning. <laughs> so uh, the, the ever dapper uh, Roger Stone didn't show up that way at first appearance, and that, that was... All made. right. In, in the very brief time that's left, just an ugly little story in the news this week. Didn't get a lot of attention, but Mike Ertel, the Secretary of State, in office two weeks, is seen in a photograph from 14 years ago in blackface as a woman with a bandana that saying Katrina victim, and of course he had to resign. I mean, it, it, it really, why Why was the vetting process not better? Well, hold on, was, I, I don't think you can blame the vetting process. I, yeah. now, I, I knew Mike Hurtel for years as a reporter, had to work with him in Seminole County, yeah. very skilled at what he did, yeah. but you can run a thousand clean and good elections. You, and you may a lot not of, find the photograph. Right, yeah. you, well, you can run a thousand good elections and not be called a great secretary of state, yeah. but if you dress in blackface as a Katrina victim just once, watch what they call you, and that's what he's getting now. Lesson here is just do the right thing all the time, all the time. <laughs> Always. Always. Well, All, right. A, yeah. All right. Guess what? Crazy, At a time. Crazy story. I'm sorry.